The following program does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Reality Radio 101, its advertisers and sponsors, or its listening audience. Listener discretion is advised. This episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show has been brought to you by Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. Two centuries of fruit tree expertise. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show, here on Reality Radio 101. In this radio show and podcast, we learn about fruit trees, permaculture, arboriculture, and so much more. So if you love trees, and especially fruit trees, or if you're interested in living a more sustainable life, then this is the place for you. I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, OrchardPeople.com. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner. To contact Susan live right now, send her an email in studio101 at gmail.com. And now, right to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. Hi, everybody. It's really sad to think about animal species that are now extinct. Let's face it, you're not going to run into a woolly mammoth at any time soon. That's because that huge creature disappeared about 10,000 years ago as a result of human hunting and habitat loss. Other creatures have vanished off the face of the earth more recently, like the Tasmanian tiger, which wasn't actually a tiger. It was a marsupial from the same family as kangaroos, and it looked like a large dog with tiger-like stripes. After being extensively hunted, the last Tasmanian di- tiger died in a zoo in 1936. Today, an increasing number of animals are threatened with extinction, according to the Center for Biological Diversity. They say that an estimated 30 to 50 percent of all plant and animal species could be heading for extinction by 2050. What a scary thought. But animals aren't the only ones that are missing in action here on our beautiful planet. Plants, including fruits and vegetables, have disappeared too as a result of industrialization of agriculture. For instance, Once there were thousands and thousands of named apple varieties grown here in North America. Now, about 80% of those are gone. And instead, our supermarkets are selling us just a handful of popular cultivars, like Red Delicious, Honeycrisp, and Gala. So what if you discovered that there was a fruit tree in your community that is endangered? What if you knew it was one of the last trees of its kind, and that once it dies, that fruit variety would be no more? Would you just say, oh, what a shame, and then just walk away? Or would you work to save that tree from extinction? My guest on the show today faced that very choice. 
Paul Spence is from Kentbridge, Ontario, and during the day he works in insurance. But Paul devotes his evenings and weekends to his passion, which is farming and promoting rare edible plants and trees. One of his challenges is to help save the Jesuit pear tree, which has been growing in North America for over 300 years. And today in the show, he will tell his story. But first, if you are listening to this show live, I'd love to hear from you. Do you know of any endangered plants or fruit trees in your region? Do you grow rare fruit tree varieties as a way of preserving biodiversity in our environment? Or are you just curious to taste these wonderful and different types of fruits? Well, send in your question today or send in a comment or just email us to say hi and we'll enter you into today's contest. The prize is a copy of my award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards, valued at $19.95. To enter the contest, just send your email right now to instudio101 at gmail.com. That's instudio101 at gmail.com. I really look forward to hearing from you. So, on the line is Paul Spence from Kentbridge, Ontario. Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Susan. So, Paul, can you tell me a little bit about how you stumbled upon the story of the Jesuit pear tree? I understand that this, while this pear tree was once common in your region, you had never heard about it until, you know, quite recently. <coughs> yes, oddly... I heard about it from a friend I knew through my passion for heritage grains. Um, his name is John Letts, and he is in the United Kingdom. And he is also originally from Chatham-Kent. And so through our friendship at one time, he just sent me an email asking me if I would be interested in such a project um, because it had roots and ties into Chatham-Kent. And he introduced me to a young lady from Ann Arbor who was also interested in maintaining this pair. And that's how I got introduced to the Jesuit pear three, two years ago, three years ago. So is this a pear tree that's just like Bosque or Bartlett? It's just a different, you know, variety. It tastes a little different. Or is there more to it than that? What's the history of this tree? Um, there's a lot more to it. Um, back in the 1600s, the Jesuit missionaries would have brought these trees to North America um, for the settlers that were settling at that time. At that time... It wouldn't be known as the Jesuit pear. It was just known as pear tree, and its origins would have been in France. Um, but two of the big differences for the pear were the longevity of the tree, because some trees are over 250 years old, and then also just the disease resistance and tolerance that these trees have to different diseases that have manifest themselves in today's society. So are you saying that they referred at the time to this tree as just a pear tree? Were there no other sort of native pear trees in North America at that time? Was it the first pear tree to be here? That part I'm not sure about, but one of the realities is a lot of the trees and species that we have in North America and fruits and um, plants came from other parts of the world. And as you said in your introduction, it's sad that people don't know the story behind these because Part of the story is actually the people group or the culture that brought them here. And that's what we seem to be missing in our today's food system is we don't really understand what's behind a certain plant or fruit or tree. 
When you Google online um, and you start to research the Jesuit pear tree, you do read there are myths and stories, I don't know if they're true, that the Jesuits planted these trees in groups of 12 to represent the apostles. Have there been any other, have you heard of that, or are there any other stories around the Jesuit pear tree that you've heard? Yes, there's several, and I think that's the main one, and they were, there have historically been found plantings of 12 trees. And then one tree would have been planted further away, and that one would have been just like the biblical example of the Jesuits, um, the Judas tree, and the one that they kept away from them in case there was damage or something happened to the planting of 12. But the other part is just how it came to be that it was actually planted in the 1600s, and that was before the city of Detroit would have been there. And so it was planted at a fort that is now encompassed within the city of Detroit. And then as those people moved here and the city got bigger and bigger, um, first it was, that was before the advent of the United States of America and before the founding fathers created it. And so those people would have been the first settlers, but then the British took over through the different wars that happened. And then following that, the Americans took over from the British. And so the, the French people that were here at that time actually moved out of the Detroit area and moved down closer to Monroe, Michigan. Some moved over into Ontario, and there were different settlements that were scattered around the region. But when they came, there were no borders. There was no U.S. and Canada side. There was just the Detroit region. Hmm. Interesting. We got a a quick email here um, entitled, Thank You, from John. Hello, Susan. What a very important topic today. Thank you, Paul, for all of your work. That is amazing. We are listening from Reno, Nevada. Thank you, John, for that email. That's great. Um, so, so basically, you're saying that from the 1600s, these trees were focused uh, in the area around Detroit, Michigan, and Ontario. Is that the case, or were they also planted elsewhere in North America? No, well, the majority of them were planted here, other parts of the country I'm not sure on, but they were planted here specifically um, because that's where the French settlers ended up and that's where there still are remnants of French communities. There are two in Chatham-Kent, Pancor, and then there's a group down by Tilbury. Um, But there are French remnants in Ontario and then if you understand the history of Detroit, there are French remnants there as well with the names of the Rouge River. Um, Different parts of Detroit actually have French in their names of cities um, Monroe, Michigan used to be called Frenchtown. And so if you do a history of the area, there you follow the pattern of where these people moved and where these trees relocated as people moved that were from French culture. So do uh, the Jesuit pear trees look different from our more modern pear trees? Does the fruit look different? Does the actual tree look different? Yes, to both do. The tree itself is generally a lot bigger because it also grows such a long has such a longevity of its life so they you could imagine looking at an oak tree that these pear trees are typically very thick in the base the older older ones and then a lot taller and a lot bigger than a modern pear tree because they're very small and like a dwarf planting and then the pear itself yes is very different than what we would view in the grocery store today with you said a pear a bosque or other types of pears so if you put your palm out and that little crevice that's in the middle of your palm, the Jesuit pear would basically fit into that size of a space. 
and then they're typically smaller, they're harder um, because they're our preserving pair, and then they would have a red or a yellowish tinge as they ripen out and get ready for when harvest is about to happen. Okay, so you've got these small little round pears. Uh, I'm imagining them being sort of almost plum size. Um, mm-hmm. So how do you eat them? Do you eat them fresh or? You can eat them fresh, but what was typically done, and that's why they were brought to the region, is they're a preserving pear. And so typically the French people would pick them in the late summer, so August or September, depending on the weather. And then they were wrapped in newspaper and you could put them in your cellar or your root cellar, and they would last into January if you preserve them properly. And that would be before the actual process of canning was set up or done. And then later on, as time evolved, then the process of canning and like pickling, making pickles, same process would be done with the pear, and then they would last them through the winter when fresh fruit and fruit were very scarce in the region because of the winter. So actually, these Jesuit pears really helped communities, especially these French communities, to survive. Yep, and that's why they were brought by the the missionaries, was to really try and help the um, people that were settling here and help them try and get through the winter because that's what they were trying to do, is settle the region and learn how to get through these long, cold winters that we have in our region. Uh, We got an email here from Kyle. This is cool. He's, uh, Kyle says, hi, just tuned in from Detroit, Michigan. So these trees are about 400 years old. Are there any older trees that you know of? Thanks. No, the oldest one that we know of was would have been planted in 1890, and that's actually on the Ontario side of the river. Um, and that's the oldest one known. There may be older ones, but that's the one that I, I know of. So... In these old days, you people planted trees. These were these trees planted from seed. You know, if they do, they come true from seed. So, was that two hundred and fifty year old tree that you're talking about planted from a seed, from a fruit, from an earlier tree that was planted in the sixteen hundreds? That's one of the, as you said, the myths or the lore behind the tree is they're not sure whether it came over in seeds or whether the. Jesuit priests brought them over as small trees or grafts and planted them here as a small seedling. That's the one part that's not known. What is known today is typically when they are transplanted or moved is a cutting is taken from a present-day tree, a larger tree, and put on a root stock or a grafted stock today, and that's typically how it's done. They don't typically plant them from seeds. They plant them from a a graft or a cutting. And, um, you know, because I know often that with fruit trees, if you plant them from seed, you just don't get tasty fruit. With apples, there's just too much biodiversity. If you plant a seed from a Macintosh apple, the chances of the tree producing an apple that's even edible is pretty much like zero. (laughs) So I just, that would be interesting to know because they did know about grafting, um, you know, They've known about grafting for thousands of years, so that would be an interesting fact to learn about. Um, have you have you personally tasted um, these Jesuit pears? What do you think of them? Yep, I've had the opportunity to eat them many times. I've eaten them both fresh and then in a pickled form or preserved form. And I guess from the perspective of a pickled form, what you notice is they just hold up. Um, they have a lot more robust taste and they don't break down like a modern-day pear would in, in the, like using a pickling process or a, a brine solution. The fresh pears, um, 
it's just a lot different process because typically they're picked when they're very hard and very green. And so, again, you're getting a stronger, more robust. Some of the chefs I've worked with have indicated they have a spicy flavor and a lot of the notes that people don't typically notice today in the pears because it's just a bland, more consistent flavor and taste. Uh-huh. Also, I'm sorry, uh, Paul, if you could talk a little bit closer to the mic where you're getting a little bit soft there. Yep. Um, thank you. Oh, that sounds way better. So we've got an email from Michelle. Uh, she says, hi. What do these pears actually taste like regarding mainstream pears? Thank you. Um, and she's from Portland, Maine. So I guess you had mentioned the spiciness. Like, if we would have up these pears side by side with a Bosque pear, I mean, would you know right away this is just not the same thing? Yep, and that's what the, the chefs notice. It's even the same with most of the heritage grains that I work with. That Typically today we have wheat that tastes very consistent and bland across the board. The older varieties, just like the pear, um, typically have notes and hints of flavors, of florals, floral notes, and those are the things that I guess chefs typically pick up on is their subtleties, but they're also we don't really enjoy and savor food, food anymore. And I think that's one of the downfalls of the way we eat is we just don't appreciate the differences on the products that we put in our mouth. Yes, absolutely. And especially since, let's face it, um, in terms of pears, we've got a very small selection to choose from. So we really don't have the opportunity to explore um, so much. Yep. Yeah. So, okay. So here you are, you discover that there are these pear trees in the community where you grew up. What was your first instinct? What did you think you could do to actually help to, to keep this tree from going uh, extinct, basically? Uh, well, I didn't actually really know because I knew nothing about them. I knew nothing about the history. And I guess with all things, if you're somebody who's from an entrepreneurial spirit, you sometimes jump in before you know things. And part of that is, I guess, the good part about being an entrepreneur. As you learn, you realize the challenges that exist. And so for me, it was just realizing that, as you said in your intro, that this is something that very few people have ever tasted. It's something that very few people know. And for me, the sad part was it was actually in my community um, for years. And I had no idea what it was. I had no idea to the link it had to my community and the story it told of a people that made up my community so where did you take it from there um so i came in one year late so when they started they originally did a tasting in monroe michigan who's Um, this who did a tasting so it was a a lady from chicago named dar she was the one that put the jesuit pear on the slow food arc of taste which was she nominated it and then they did a tasting uh jean tremblay who's from the french community in ontario was there and then Laura Moscow, who was the young lady I was introduced day one to the pair um, from Ann Arbor, was there. There was about 8 to 12 people at that first tasting. And that was the advent of it. It was, And then I got brought in the next year. And then the idea was, how do we start collaborating across the border? So working Ontario and Michigan together and also trying to figure out a solution for the fact that to have these pears, you need the trees. And to have the trees, you need to grow them for several years before they start fruiting. So we needed to start to build a movement or a momentum towards getting more trees in the ground and more trees planted. And then that's what we started doing. So in the fall, 
we will do a pickling party and people can come out and join that, um, learn how to pickle them and be together, see the fruits in their fresh form and then pick them. And then in the spring, we would typically do a grafting party. So the fruits from the fall session would be tasted. They would be cracked open in the spring. And part of it is to get people to realize the taste and the flavor, but also realize that they could have a part in bringing this fruit back. And then those fruits, after the tasting, the grafting session happens so that people can take the tree home spread it out across the region, keep the biodiversity strong, and also keep multiple plantings happening. So in case they ever do go extinct, we still have other options to grow them. So essentially, when you guys started, do you know how many Jesuit pear trees there were? Were there, you know, 100? Were there 50? Um, At least that you knew of, that that you knew where they were, you guys, as a group. Um, As a group, no, there would have been only maybe 12 to 20 trees that people knew of. So wow. they're very, very rare, and they're very unique to find them. And that was also part of the challenge, is not telling tons of people, because we also wanted to protect the trees until we got some in the ground and established to know that there were other possible sources for cuttings. And so that's, no, just how extinct these trees were, whereas a select few people knew where they were and had ever tasted them. And so with these grafting sessions that you guys held, so you're creating new trees, you're taking cuttings from the original ancient trees, and you're attaching them to a pear rootstock, and hopefully it works and they fuse together, and you then plant those trees. Do you have any idea how many Jesuit pear trees there are today? Um, Somewhat. There is on the Slow Food Ann Arbor site. They created a database and a map So when people planted, or when people came to the grafting session, what we asked them to do was then go back into the database and enter where that tree was planted so that we could see where they were. And then as we as a group, as we found more across the region, because once people started talking about it and hearing about the story, some people recognized that their family had a tree in the backyard or their grandmother knew of a tree And so those trees, we asked people to keep pinpointing them and uh, plotting them on the map. And then that map was a central database for where the trees were across the region. So do you think we've gone and got up to 100? Do you think there's now 100 out there or is that pushing it? That's probably pushing it. And then the other part is just with the reality of not everybody that comes to the tasting is a professional grafter. And so I I don't have the greatest success with grafting. And that's where it would be great um, for tree enthusiasts to join into this was from the people I've spoken with that have attended a session, I would say 50-40% of our trees don't make it because we just don't have the skills probably necessary to manage and take care of such a fragile tree, small tree. Well, that's a good call out for this program for people who lived in this area who are good at grafting. Absolutely. Uh, at some point in the show, we'll tell you how to reach out to to Paul and join the group and help to improve the rates of grafting these trees. Um, We've got an email here from Pam. Hi, Susan, just tuned in from Orlando, Florida. I'm not sure if this question was asked already. How did the pears actually get their name? Thanks. So the Jesuit pears got their name, well, there are several names that they go by now. They're called the Jesuit pear. They're called the missionary pear. But ultimately, their name came from the Jesuit missionaries that came to North America from France, and they brought the trees with them. 
back then they would have just been called a pear tree but as time evolved and they were traced back to those people um that's how they got their name a linked question here from ralph hi maybe a very silly question there are no silly questions ralph we ask everything on the show <laughs> um but are these pears associated with a religion from st louis um, so yeah, I guess so like you were saying, so are they associated with the, the Christian religion? No, but I think, well, they are associated with the religion, but I guess it would be, if you think back to how people would have settled here, that just like other place that the people were sent from France and they were basically doing, if, uh, lack of a better term, it's God's work and they were settling a new country. Mm-hmm. So those fruits were brought by the missionaries to plant in the region to give out to the region and then one fact that i learned last week was um the king of france would have owned the land in the region when the french settled here it would have been his by claim and by title but to take a property from him you had to better or improve that property and back then they would have called them ribbon farms and those ribbon farms one of the ways to stake your claim would have been to plant some of these trees which would have come from the people who were representing probably the king back then would have been Jesuit priests because that was the way the society was structured, that the king was God's representative on earth in some in some instances. Wow. Um, we've got an interesting question here from John from London, Ontario. So this is cool. Um, John writes, I have grafted a few Jesuit pears two years ago. The rootstock I used was OHXF97. I'm wondering if you could ask Paul Spence if that is a good rootstock for Jesuit pears, and if so, how many years on average to fruiting? I understand they can take some time to fruit. So the rootstock, that wouldn't be my forte. There's actually a gentleman in Michigan who is the quote-unquote crafting specialist, and I know that he uses two specific rootstocks um, for the pears that we graft on. He orders them in. And then as far as the timeline on when they will fruit, we're still unclear because we're still in the infancy of the project because it's only been two years, and most of them are an inch wide of a cutting. So we're still looking for that to determine that timeline. Yeah, just on that topic, you know, with some uh, apple trees, for instance, it can take seven or eight years. But when you think about it, if a Jesuit pear tree can live to 250 years, then it probably will take its time, you know, in the early, you know, when you've got a li- longer lifespan, it takes you a while to become a, you know, a teenager or whatever. Um, so who knows? It could take time. And um, that that's a very interesting question. Yeah, that's actually probably something you could speak to, Susan, is there's two ways to do it. You could plant it on a rootstock that's in the same size as the cutting we're doing. Or you can take that cutting and put it on a mature fruit tree of another species. And then, from what I understand, you typically get fruit faster that way because it's an established tree when you're just grafting on a portion of it. That is a very exciting idea. And people do that all the time. So you can have an old apple tree and perhaps you don't like the flavor of the apples. It's a cultivar you're not a big fan of. And so you can graft on one or two branches of something that you really love, you know, like a gala or um, Liberty apple. And so this tree will become a multi, you know, will, will actually produce a number of different types of apples 
And I'm really excited to hear like if people have experimented with Jesuit pears, putting them on other pear trees that are already established in order to speed up fruiting. Do you know if anybody has actually done that? There is one farmer in Fairbury, Illinois. Um, the, Tra- the Spence family farm, it's Marty Travis and Will Travis's son. They had some existing fruit trees that I believe they put the cuttings that were sent to them on. And they're still waiting for fruit, but that is one. Yeah, they have tried it, and we're just determining because I think they said they got a 40 to 50% take on their mm-hmm. cuttings. And then we're just determining when they're actually going to get fruit. That is super exciting. Let's just take a minute, listen to a few words from our sponsors. Um, We will continue to talk about Jesuit Pairs, about the amazing people that you've met during this little adventure you've been having. Paul, are you okay staying on the line for just a minute? Yep. Great. Well, folks, you're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is RealityRadio101.com, and I'm Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. We'll be back right after the break. Stark Brothers is primarily a direct-to-consumer marketer of fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees. We do this on a national basis. We're the largest as far as what we do, and we've been doing it for 200 years. The company started in 1816 when James Hart Stark brought his family and a satchel full of apple science across the Mississippi River, settled here in what is now Louisiana, Missouri. The big first apple for Stark Brothers was the Red Delicious Apple, and it started in 1893. And then 20 years later, in 1914, the Golden Delicious Apple was mailed to the facility here. Two-thirds of all the apples eaten in the world today are cousins of these two apples. Essentially, they have the DNA of the Red Delicious or Golden Delicious Apple in their DNA. We have about eight acres of warehouses, and we have between 350 and 400 acres of field production going on every year, which is split into two crops, the crop you're budding and the crop you're selling. We have about five acres of greenhouses. We offer a wide variety of product. We're growing woody fruit trees, small fruits, raspberries, blueberries, knockout roses, kiwis. There's always a new product coming out or a new technique. E-commerce has changed our business model completely, and we recognize we're open 24-7, and the customer wants their merchandise faster and sooner than they ever have. What works well with us is that, one, we're centrally located, that 75% of our customer base is within two days' time in transit. We'll send an email on a Monday, and if you place your order today or tomorrow, you'll be planting this weekend. Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. Learn more at starkbros.com. Hi everyone, congratulations on investing in a new fruit tree. Fruit trees are a blessing. With just a bit of skilled hands-on care, they can give you plenty of delicious organic fruit for years to come. I'm Susan Poisner, an urban orchardist from Toronto, Canada. And over the years, I've learned that how we care for our trees when they're young will determine their success and productivity in the long term. If you do want to learn more, there's lots more that I would love to teach you, like how to prune fruit trees of all shapes, ages, and sizes, how to optimize tree health, 
and various different ways to protect your trees from pests and disease. So check out my website at orchardpeople.com where you can watch free videos and read great blogs about growing fruit trees. Or you can check out my online certificate in beginner fruit tree care, where in just eight hours, including fun and informative videos, interactive quizzes, and information-packed eBooks, you can learn how to keep your tree healthy and productive for years to come. Happy growing from orchardpeople.com. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show and Podcast, brought to you by Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner, author of the award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. In today's show, we're talking about an endangered pear tree called the Jesuit pear tree. Missionaries brought this tree from France way back in the 1600s, as a way to ensure that the locals would have fruit to preserve and eat throughout the winter. And my guest is Paul Spence from Kent Bridge, Ontario. He is one of a small group of people in both Canada and the United States who are working to bring back this beautiful and productive tree. In the first part of the show, we talked about the Jesuit pear tree's history. And now I'd like to hear a little bit more about those people who are trying to save this tree. I'd also like to talk a little bit about how you serve the preserved fruit. What kind of dishes does it go with? We'll talk about all that coming right up. But first, if you're listening to the show live, why not send me an email with a question or a comment, or you can just write in to say hi, and I will enter you into today's contest. If you win, I'll send you a copy of my award-winning fruit tree care book, Growing Urban Orchards. It's valued at $19.95. To enter the contest, just send us an email right now with your question or comment. Send the email to instudio101 at gmail.com and do remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. So Paul, I understand that you have visited a number of these Jesuit pear trees that remain, these beautiful old trees. Can you tell me a little bit about where you've seen these trees? I've been able to meet quite a few people along this journey, and some of them, as you said, were on the Ontario side of the border, and some were on the Michigan side of the border. Sorry, Paul, can you speak up just a teeny, teeny bit? Yep. The ones that I've had more opportunity to engage with are the ones on the Ontario side of the border, and I guess the two people that stand out for me on this side of the border are um, Earl Eidler is the first one, and he would be almost 100 years old now, um, he has a tree on his farm that's one of the originals. It goes back 250 years. And if you were to go on Google right now and type in the Jesuit pear, you would probably find an article about the Jesuit pear, and the first face you would see would be Earl's. He's a lovely old man that is just 
excited to talk to anybody who will listen. Um, he's cared for the pair for so many years, and he knows so much about it. And he's the one that we get a lot of the um, scoyans from for people to plant, so we make sure that it's true um, and genetically viable. And then the second person would be Jean Tremblay, um, an older gentleman as well, not as old, um, but he's from the French-Canadian. His background is French-Canadian. He lives near Tilbury, Ontario, and a wealth of knowledge because he grew up as a little boy um, having one of these trees on their family farm, and he remembers crawling up it, picking them for his mom, and then preserving them with her and going through the process that I explained earlier about wrapping some in paper. Um, so they had them through the winter season, and then also teaching us the original recipe that if you were to go on the Slow Food um, website and type in the Jesuit pear, it would be his family recipe that's on there that they preserve and use to preserve the pears. What was it like the first time you visited that that older gentleman that's almost 100 years old? Like, was he happy to have somebody visiting him that was really interested? Um, what was that visit like? Um, yeah, he was ecstatic about it, but I think what was, I guess, weird and unique is in today's world, when we go to somebody's door, you knock and wait for them to introduce you or to open the door and let you in. He's very, very old and his hearing's very bad. And so when I got on the farm, there was a younger person there, probably one of his relatives. And they just said, when I started knocking, they just said, walk in. (laughs) And so I did. And then the second time I went, um, same thing. I just knocked once and walked in and yeah, he's just delighted. He's sitting in a chair and just delighted that somebody's showing interest in this bear. Um, he has an old file folder full of clippings, newspaper articles, documents about the pair. And he's just, it's he's probably the person that's been holding this project together for so many years and nobody's really showed any interest or there's been very little. Um, but he's just preserved and continued to preserve and be so passionate about this tree and this pair. And how is his crop? Because, the, the again, one of the interesting and challenging things with fruit trees is many of them are cross-pollinating. So they need a partner tree in order to actually produce fruit. You need to often have two trees with a different genetic sort of uh, experience on each tree. So they have to be compatible. So does he actually get a crop on his tree if he only has one or does he have more than one tree? No, he has one on his property, but there is a conservation property um, very in close proximity to his, and there are a few trees there, and that's probably how they cross-pollinate. But yes, he's been getting fruit for years. The last two years, um, for those that are maybe not paying attention, have been unique from a weather perspective. And so the one year we had a lot of rain, and that seemed to quicken the season for ripening them. And they were ready much earlier, so I missed that year when I went to his farm. And then the previous year, I believe it was, it was too dry. And so I guess that's the other reality as this climate crisis continues and it continues to affect our culture, that it's starting to impact food because these old trees or these old fruits um, function on a climate that was more moderate, more temperate, and also didn't have the extremes we're starting to experience. And I guess that's the other reality that we have to start and think about is our impact on the world is being felt all over the place. Absolutely. Um, So these people are the caretakers of these old, old trees. And 
Um, I assume that when you have your tasting sessions or when you do your grafting, you're getting your grafting scions and the little snippets of branches, and you're getting your fruit from these older trees. Is that correct? Yep. Some of them come from them. The scions, as you said, yes, we try and keep track of where they're coming from so that when somebody leaves the grafting session, we can make sure that they have at least two or three trees and have them from different genetic sources. So one tree would be Earl's. Um, there's some trees on the Detroit side. There's a tree at Jean Tremblay's farm, and he knows where there are a couple more. And so what we try and do is have all the cuttings on the table, and then people are encouraged to take different ones so that they can help with the genetic diversity. Right. Uh, that's great. Now, Sean writes, I've got an email from Sean. Hi, Susan. No questions today from Toronto. However, as a fruit grower, I find this topic very interesting. Thank you for the topic. Well, thank you, Sean, for writing in. Okay, so you get the fruit, you do um, the tastings. I understand that there's some work as well with professional chefs from both sides of the border um, trying to devise if we were and if we are going to bring back this fruit, this sort of pickled pear, what do you serve it with? (laughs) Yep, and that's, I guess, the question that when we started this, we were just tasting the fruit in the original form in the recipe that's on the Slow Food website. It would be a very tart or strong acid flavor. Um, partly probably because of necessity to keep get it through the winter and keep people from the different diseases that could come from canning improperly. But what we tried to do a couple of years ago was start and reach out to area chefs because chefs, that's where their skill lies, is in tastes and in flavors and in combining different ingredients. And so last year in Ann Arbor, we had four different chefs create different dishes and I'll give you an offering of what we were able to sample. So we had a miso butter squash. We had a brine pork tenderloin with the pickled Jesuit pear. We had rye, pear, and aged Gouda medallions. We had gorgonzola and pear tartlets with buckwheat walnut crust. And we had just a charcuterie board, which we were allowed to just showcase how the pears tasted in their purest form. And then through that, what was actually determined was um, a few years ago, we decided, mostly me, because I don't really like the strong acidic flavor, is we started taking preserved pickle or um, preserved pear recipes that were more sweet and more on the savory side and doing it with a, a rum or a rye or some kind of bourbon um, that gave it a nice uh, fruity floral notes to try and see if those would accentuate them better. And what was determined in the last tasting was the chefs actually preferred the original recipe, which was very acidic and tart, because pairing something with the acidity actually cuts fat in meat, and they go very well together. Hmm. So the pork tenderloin dish that we got to taste was some of the people's favorites because of the chefs knowing how to use that food and the different flavor profiles in the dish. Oh, sounds fantastic. That sounds like a fun experience. So, uh, yeah, so I want to I want to go to a word from our sponsors again, just for a couple of minutes. But, Paul, you've got a lot going on right now in terms of not just preserving um, Jesuit pears, but you're really um, working to bring back a lot of other heritage uh, grains and other heritage vegetables and that you are going to be starting a living museum. 
Um, is that the case? I would like to talk about that a little bit after the break, but can you just tell me briefly what it is that your project is? So right now we've lived on our family farm that's been in our family for five generations. Um, it's gone down the road where it's more focused on industrial or commodity crops. And my passion or my persuasion is always to something unique and different. And so for the last 10 years, I've become more of a nuisance at our family farm. And so in the last year, we were able to purchase our own five-acre property. And what we want to do is create basically a loving museum where people can come out, taste, experience, and interact with food on a very personal and intimate level. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Let's talk about that in just a few minutes. But in the meantime, uh, let's listen to a word from our sponsors. Does that sound okay? Can you hold on the line? I can hold. Thank you. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. We'll be back in just a minute. In healthy soil, there's so much activity going on. Microorganisms thrive, and good bacteria feed on sugars that seep out of plant and tree roots. In return, these bacteria transform nutrients in the soil into fertility that our plants can enjoy. But what if you don't have perfect soil? Those friendly bacteria may not be active, and your plants and trees may not thrive. There is a solution, though. Earth Alive Soil Activator is an organic biofertilizer that contains three carefully selected bacterial strains that will make nutrients in the soil available to your plants. And your plant or tree will thank you with better growth and a better harvest. Earth Alive Soil Activator has been shown to boost yields in crops including avocados, grapes, strawberries, and even guavas. Go to EarthAliveCT.com to learn more about it and let our friendly bacteria bring your growing spaces back to life. If you're thinking of planting fruit trees and you're looking for a wide selection of cultivars, consider Wiffle Tree Nursery. Our 62-page full-color catalog includes 300 varieties of fruit and nut trees, berries, grapes, and other edible perennial plants. Not only that, in our catalog, we help you through the selection process with tips and advice about all aspects of growing fruit trees. You could learn about adding nitrogen-fixing plants, rootstock choices, and even about planting a windbreak if you have a windy site. We're a one-stop shop as we sell fruit tree care books, pruning tools, organic sprays, and natural fertilizers. We're located in Alora, Ontario, but we can ship all over Canada. Call us at 519-669-1349 to order your catalog. That's 519-669-1349. Wiffle Tree Nursery. Call us today. Welcome back to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101. To get on board, send us an email right now. Our email address is 
instudio101 at gmail.com. And now, right back to your host of the Urban Forestry Radio Show, Susan Poisner. You're listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show brought to you by Stark Brothers Nursery and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm your host, Susan Poisner of the Fruit Tree Care Training website, orchardpeople.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. My guest today is Paul Spence, an advocate who is dedicated to bringing an heirloom fruit tree back from the brink of extinction. It's the Jesuit pear tree, a huge and majestic tree that originally came from France and was widely grown in parts of North America way back in the 16 and 1700s. So in a minute, Paul and I are going to chat a little bit more about his project, not only preserving the uh, Jesuit pear tree, but actually creating a living museum and farm that celebrates foods that are rare and, you know, on their way to being lost. He wants to bring them back. But there are a few more minutes for you to enter the contest today. Uh, You can win a copy of my fruit tree care training book, Growing Urban Orchards. So if you want to enter, you've got a couple of minutes left. Just send your email to instudio101 at gmail.com. Send us a question or a comment or just say hi. And remember to include your first name and where you're writing from. So, Paul, you've been talking about this this farm and living museum that you are going to be creating on a new farm property. In addition to the Jesuit pear tree, what would we see on that farm? What types of rare uh, vegetables or grains would you be growing there? Well, that's what we're working through right now. Um, As I said, when we started, how I got into this and what took me down this path was heirloom grains. And so I have a freezer full of different grains that older people have given me. I found online seed catalogs, whatnot, um, corn, small grains, so wheat, rye, buckwheat, um, and then edible beans. And those are all things that typically farmers grow, but we've gone down the road towards industrial farming and it's commodity based. And so everything is just one variety and very non-diverse. And so... That's one aspect. There will be fruit trees like the pear, digital pear. Um, pawpaw is something that more and more people are getting climate to, and that was something that grew in combination in the region um, way back, and it would have been attributed to the First Nations people. Um, so those are things that we're looking at from the fruit. Um, nut trees, we'd like to have the full gamut so that when people can come in, they can start and learn about food So whether it be grains, whether it be fruits, whether it be vegetables, um, that they can learn the full gamut and understand how everything interacts in the ecological system and then also interact with the food through tastings, through workshops, through dinners, um, so people can understand what's behind the food that I see in my my journey along this path and meeting these older people that have held on to these things. That's what's rich and that's what the diversity to me is the most important part of the project hmm. actually a question here from elise from orlando florida and she's talking about the jesuit pear and she says beside being tart does this pear variety have a drinkable juice that's a very good question i'm not sure it was something that we could potentially talk to the chefs about and see if there's an opportunity to do some kind of juice I've never been asked that question. Isn't that a great question? So thank you, Elise, for that. 
That's a very interesting question. Okay, so you're creating this amazing farm. So I guess your your idea is to focus, like, would you take grains, for instance, from Texas or somewhere like that, like any rare grain you will grow? Or are you just focusing on, on the types of uh, grains and vegetables and fruits that were grown in your region? Nope, we want to do both. Um, we would like to do stuff that was grown historically here. That has a story, but the other part of it is my wife um, immigrated here from Ecuador. And so when she came here, she's obviously wanted to maintain her heritage and her culture, which has shown me, I guess, a different lens in society is when people move here from other countries and settle here, they have a food culture and a food tradition that they also bring with them, just like the the visual pairs came from the French culture. And so we want to grow things that are specific to her country, to the Latin community, and stories that she remembers as a child that influenced her, but also can open people's eyes to how food should taste in today's world versus 20 years ago or 30 years ago or even 100 years ago. So you came from a farming background, but you've rebelled. You're a rebel. <laughs> like, you're not growing soybeans or corn for biofuels or anything like that you want to do this special thing but why is it so important to you to uh to be growing these rare grains and trees like why does it matter um it matters in the sense that farmers and i'll probably get in trouble for saying this farmers used to grow food and we've moved towards farmers that grow as you said things for biofuels things for plastic. We can use all kinds of products in different industries. But I was always raised and I always grew up understanding that farmers grow food for consumption. And that's what I think has been happening in the urban centers is the craft industry has been growing. Craft distilleries, craft breweries, um, all these different chefs or culinary people have started to really look at food and look at what we're missing or what we don't have or what it should be. And that's, I guess, what's opened my eyes as well is just understanding the example, I guess the easiest one for most people to realize is corn. We grow corn in a vast majority of North America. Most of it is flavorless and tasteless. But if you understand the uses, whether it be from Latin culture where it's a tortilla or a nacho, or it's used in distilling. So your rye, your whiskeys, all of those would use corn. But what stood out to me is when I talked to those people using a grain, for example, um, their first comment is the modern day stuff tastes like nothing or it tastes terrible. And that's what I think has pursued me along this is we're at a crossroads here with the climate, we're at a crossroads with our health, we're at a crossroads with the environment and Part of that responsibility goes back to farmers, that what we do to the land and what we do to food impacts our fellow humans and humanity as a whole. Absolutely. I I so, you know, appreciate you saying that. And I remember when we spoke on the phone, you you said to me something very thought-provoking, that somebody said to you, what would you do if food wasn't available at at supermarkets anymore? Like, tell me, who, who said that to you, and what does that make you think about? So that was said to me by a farmer named Marty Travis, and for those that have Netflix, they can go on and watch the documentary he's in and famous for. It's called Sustainable, 
and he's a farmer um, two hours south of Chicago. Uh, we are connected in name only, I guess, because they're the Spence family farm, and I am Paul Spence. But I was it was brought to my attention by a food writer in the area because what I was doing and what he was doing had similar paths and similar veins. And when I was down there one time, yes, he asked me that question, and it really struck me that for most of us, we go to the grocery store, we pick out what we need or what we want, and we go home and we eat it. And we don't think about food, how it got there, what's the variables that the farmer had to contend against to produce that food. And I think that's also part of what we've touched on through this interview was the Jesuit pair really highlights what food used to be. It was seasonal. It was a necessity because people actually starved. And if they didn't take care of their food properly and maintain it, they had nothing to eat. And as a society now where you can literally go to the grocery store and get almost anything you want from a watermelon to an avocado to a guava any time of the year. And that doesn't really strike anybody as weird or unique. And yet the rest of the world doesn't eat like that. We do in North America. We're still not struck by that fact. Mm, I think that's very profound. I thought it at the time. I still think it. Um, Okay, I have a little bucket here with a whole bunch. We got lots of emails today. So I'm going to pick the name of our winner to see who wins a copy of my book, Growing Urban Orchards. So are you interested, Paul, to hear who wins? I am. Okay, well, let's just pick one of these. I'm opening there. Oh, I got two, but now it's, they were tangled up. And now let's see. Our winner today is Ralph from St. Louis. Ralph, you have won a copy of my book. We are going to email you, get your address, and we're going to send it right off to you. Thank you uh, for sending in your emails, everybody. I wish I could get a, give everybody a copy. But Ralph is our winner, so thank you so much. And thank you so much, Paul, for spending this time with us today on the show and sharing your passion with us, I think it's an inspiration for me and for many, many people to, to really start to think a little bit more about the food that we choose, the food that we grow, and the food that we eat and enjoy. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Susan. Okay, you take care. Goodbye for now. That was Paul Spence from Kentbridge, Ontario. So now we are nearing the end of the show. And I wanted to ask you all a huge favor. Did you like the show? Are you a regular listener? Because if you are, I would be so happy if you could go to iTunes or your favorite podcatcher and just rate or review the show. Just say, hey, I like the show or whatever. Um, that would be fantastic. There are so many podcasts out there. And shows that are highly rated are more likely to be featured and more and they're easier to find. So thank you so much. If you can do that, go to your podcatcher or iTunes and search Urban Forestry Radio and you will find it and then you can rate it. That's it for today's episode of the Urban Forestry Radio Show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to listen again, if you missed parts of it, or if you want to download other episodes, you can find them at orchardpeople.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn some more fruit tree care skills that will help your fruit trees thrive, sign up for one of my courses at orchardpeople.com slash workshops. My courses are fantastic for both beginner and intermediate level growers. Or you can always check out my book at orchardpeople.com slash book. 
You have been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show brought to you by Stark Brothers Nurseries and Orchards. This is Reality Radio 101, and I'm Susan Poisner. Uh, Have a great day, and I will see you again next month. You've been listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show on Reality Radio 101. To learn more about the show and to download the podcast where I cover lots more great topics, you can visit orchardpeople.com slash podcast. The show is broadcast live on the last Tuesday of every month. And each time I have great new guests talking to me about fruit trees, food forests, and arboriculture. If you're interested in learning more about growing your own fruit trees or just about living a more sustainable life, go to orchardpeople.com and sign up for my information-packed monthly newsletter. If you like this show, please do like our Orchard People Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Urban Fruit Trees. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's been wonderful to have you as a listener, and I hope to see you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Urban Forestry Radio Show with your host, Susan Poisner, right here on Reality Radio 101.